travel through the ponderous door betwixt realities to the ancient and eldritch abode of fear itself. Push your shaking hands down the back of the sofa of subconscious, deep into a realm of fluff and nightmares, where the secrets and mysteries of mankind lay entwined with your truest terrors manifest. Open your eyes, twice, and bear witness to the one man who walks the path twixt superstition and credulity alone. Badius Bant! Me! I, I, I burped before, well, that, well, that, well, can you take that out? Will that pick up? What, you mean when you burp directly into the mic? Yeah, will that pick up? Yeah. Well, well, you can take one out. You wanted the bloody day rate. You can take it out on your own time. Yes, you spin, you spin a little country. Did, did you hear that? Yes, because you said it into the mic. Right, okay. All right, well, I'm sorry about that. I didn't mean it. Spin the country. I can still hear Yeah, that. all right, that's fine. I realise... He who makes a beast of himself gets rid of the pain of being a man. Samuel Johnson. Seth Johnson. Seth Johnson played for Leeds. The subject of the tale is one Joseph Gromley. Sort of. The story is about possession, so it can get confusing. But if you've seen Freaky Friday, then it should be alright. That's the, the original 2003 version with Lindsay Lohan, not the 1976 remake. Tonight's tale begins with a palatial fortress of ultimate darkness, just off Fulton Street. The Liverpool University Department of Recklessly Short-Sighted Science. Cast your eyes high above the collapsing masonry and hastily erected lightning rods to an untidy laboratory on the top floor. Amid the discarded takeaway trays and stepped upon Watsits sits PhD student and science man Joseph Gromley. Amid the carnage of weeks of late night takeaways sits the machine. It is the usual mad scientist Wallace and Gromit setup. A hairdresser's chair, complete with metal hat for doing perms, and next to it, a large bird cage. Although not large enough to be one of those cages that ladies dance in, more of a generous aviary, flowing with wires and cryptically labelled brain-swapping machine. Joe dipped a watsit in some day-old katsu curry and munched thoughtfully, then spat contemplatively into the overflowing waste paper bin. It was 3 p.m. At 5.15, he knew that the maintenance crew would be coming to dismantle the machine and clear the laboratory for a new project. Joe smiled. They would be too late. For although his funding was gone and his research discarded by his fellows, the machine worked. Today, he would use it to swap the stress-heavy, reward-light grind of a research scientist to the carefree life of the Laris Smithsoninus. The common seagull. Perhaps it was the long evenings alone wrestling with science and the surly delivery drivers that made Joe envy the posse of seagulls on his window ledge. 
but he longed for their lives of free takeaway food, socializing, and loud outdoor sex. Today, he would finally free himself of the burden of being a man. The vehicle for his new life was flapping angrily at its leather restraints. Joe smiled, admiring its powerful build and clean white lines. He reckoned he'd picked himself quite a good-looking bird for his new body. Two hours later, the digital clock chimed 5.15. There was a knock at the door. Soon after came the maintenance man, charged with clearing Joe's life's work. But the messy lab seemed empty. Bit of a shit tip, said Fat Chris, with some justification, as he inspected the mess of fast food and slow science. Oh well said Fat Chris, as he dropped balletically to his knees, and with one powerful inhale, human hoovered the entirety of the crumbled floor watsits. Fat Chris stood up and reached for some Nancy's chips, when all of a sudden, something moved in the shadows. said the seagull, motioning to the lock on the cage door. I'd best let you out said Fat Chris, wiping red salt from his mouth and opening the cage to let Joseph Gromley fly free. None of them noticed the figure strapped to the hairdresser's chair, clumsily flapping its arms at its restraints. Joe took to the avian life like a duck to water, living the carefree life outdoors, subsisting on free chips and discarded Subway sandwiches and only occasionally murdering and ingesting unfortunate pigeons. He'd even joined a flock of seagulls, ingratiating himself as they were shitting on the living statues. This isn't the banned flock of seagulls, incidentally. If he could still speak English, Joe would be the first to admit they had been over-enthusiastic, squawking and swooping and dropping his bombs way off target, and his unrefined action had almost stopped the flock taking advantage of an unattended toddler with a sausage roll. But the flock had welcomed him with open wings, and with his help, they'd had quite a successful day. They'd managed to swipe a whole steak bait from a pensioner outside Greg's, and that would easily keep them going until 3am, when the lecturers would finally stumble out of the pub they'd spent the day in and down to Mackie D's. But the flock wouldn't have to wait that long, for as luck would have it, Joe spied two middle-aged university lecturers on a bench below, far too wrapped up in their extramarital affair to pay mind to their takeaways, left unguarded at the edge of their combined midlife crises. He signaled to the flock, and soon the gulls had landed cautiously to the rear of the bench, their presence unknown to the lovers, tearing at each other's off-brand cardigans, exposing his nipples to the cold night air. The lead girl hopped onto the bench first, and pressed his beak down onto the styrofoam container until it relented with a satisfying pop. 
letting him feast both visually and literally on the food within. He motioned to the flock to join him, but as they did so, a strange and eerie wind brushed through Joe's feathers, chilling him down to his hollowed aerodynamic bones. He stayed back and watched with beady eyes as a tall, dark figure emerged from the shadows, cloak billowing, face shrouded, striding across the quad with sinister purpose, soundless, but for the squeak, squeak, squeaking of his ice-white Reebok classics upon the flagstones, and the click of the raised revolver aimed directly at the lead girl's ketchupy beak. The gull's head burst, a Jackson Pollock spray of cheesy chips and viscera. The flock scattered as the dark figure continued firing indiscriminately, vaulting over the adulterous couple as she used her heels to pull his sensible chinos down below the waist. Joe's claws skittered across the pavement as he fled down Lord Street, dodging amid the bands of buskers and between the legs of the mangled Mickey Mouse handing out balloons to terrified children. A bullet ripped through the mascot's ill-treated felt head as the dark figure continued his pursuit, ignoring the whoops and cheers of the children around him. Too weak to run any further, Joe collapsed at the foot of the statue of Queen Victoria. Trembling with fear, he looked pleadingly upwards at his airborne comrades, remembering too late that he could fly. Resigned to his fate, Joe watched the dark figure striding up the stairs and holster his gun and producing a heavy sack from his cloak. Joe was awoken by the flash of thunder and the sounds of lightning to find himself strapped, spread seagulled, onto a wooden table, a wired colander attached to his head. And it was only then, as the storm lashed at the windows and illuminated the darkened room, that Joe saw the dark figure perched above the chamber door. Perched upon a bust of Pallas, just above his chamber door. Perched and sat, uncomfortably. The low ceiling pressing him into a back-creakingly awkward position that the groaning door lintel obviously couldn't handle. Quoth the seagull. The dark figure flung back his cloak like the wings of an avenging angel and dived gracelessly into the unforgiving parquet floor. Fuck. You stole my body, Joe! Said the body of science man Joseph Gromley. You thought it would be easy living your life as a seagull. But do you know what it's like to be a seagull in a man's body? I tried to sit on the sea, but I sank. I spent a night in the cells for tackling a child for his ice cream cone. I can't even fly! Because my passport is out of date and I don't know how to renew it because I am a seagull! I am not a human being! I am an animal! <gasps> Squawked Joe with purported innocence. The man-gull clumsily crossed to the brain-swapping machine and threw the big switch. Nothing happened. 
No! Railed the man-girl. Cool! Cried Joe, trying to explain that it wasn't plugged in. I'm trapped! Trapped in this miserable, flightless body! Never again would I revel in unmolested sex on a school roof! No more will I taste the softness of Chihuahua! You have ruined my life! Therefore, I am resolved. If these pleasures are to be denied to me, then why should you, deviant that thou art, enjoy them? Let's see how you manage with your wings clipped by bullets! The man gold laughs and fired 12 shots into his once beloved seagull body, winging him. But wings are pretty important to a seagull, and so he died. Much to the relief of the adulterous university lecturers outside in the alleyway, whose collective strokes had been put off by all the death squawking and gunfire. Time to finish your dissertation, said Benjamin Bakula, drawing a trio of moistened fingers from his mouth. And that was the end of Joe the Seagull. Some days later, locals reported the sighting of a dark figure running full pace into a plate glass window over and over and over again. <coughs> Trying to kill himself the only way a seagull knew how. <coughs> the end. So this one is entitled Witness Comic Con Love? Question mark. So, well, that's nice. I mean, normally we deal with uh, <laughs> demonic invasions of this dimension and, um, and, and horror. So it's quite nice to have a bit, a bit of a love. I mean, it's not appropriate, but it's quite nice to receive it. Hi, TB. This is Simon Collingson Nagamura. Still loving the faddiest bent Godzilla coasters that I bought from your stall at Witness Comic Con. Oh, you're very welcome, Simon. I'm glad you're still enjoying them. Um, do you, by any chance, have the number of the nice young lady who made the Wire X-Wings and Space 1999 figures that were also coat hooks? She's blocked me on Facebook, possibly because I accidentally liked a picture of her on a beach from 2008. Whoops! Hashtag awkward, I can explain. No, you can't, Simon. No, you can't. Fadia spent. Authorities have discovered the bodies of two young women, Mary and Celeste, off the coast of the Azores Islands. It goes on to say that there were no traces of semen found in either of them, which is an unusual detail to mention so prominently, but does rule out swingers' cruises at least. That was in 1872. So, those who would have cared are probably dead anyway. Ears to the ground regardless. This one's a long one. It's entitled 24 Hour Vampire Party People. Dear Fabius, my name is Stanley and I am from Allerton and I was born in the 90s. <laughs> the 1790s, that is. For I am a vampire. Even, even though I don't believe in ghosts, I am an avid fan of yours. Ever since you covered my killing spree in the 70s. <laughs> Brackets. Yes. That was me in St. James's Cemetery in 1876. 
Life as a bloodsucker was in all honesty pretty shit up until the 20th century. Chamber music is rubbish. Everyone had blood diseases, and it was so bloody dark! And that's coming from a creature of the night. Light bulbs were a godsend. Excuse me. Light bulbs were a godsend, as you can imagine. As soon as I could, I outfitted the whole house, inside and out, with as many bulbs as I could afford, and kept them on 24-7, even when I went to bed with sunrise. I even kept them on during the Blitz. Blackouts be damned. I had my rights after all, it just seemed like the government was trying to control me. A free, if admittedly damned, spirit. Unfortunately, my lit up driveway was mistaken for an airstrip, and it is with great sadness that I report that none of my precious bowls survived the 14 tons of high explosive dropped upon them. And the same can be said for my original legs. I dragged myself around the post-war period in a bit of a malaise, but my limbs grew back just in time for the summer of love. And so I was able to spend the weekends getting high from drinking hippies. Again, I didn't get the whole Beatles craze. Just wasn't my bag, baby. But I do have to thank Lennon and McCartney for one night in 1968, which changed my death completely. I distinctly remember I was eating out a school teacher around the back of the cavern club when I first heard Helter Skelter, and it blew me away. It was so heavy metal. Not that I knew that at the time, but I dug it, man. It was my jam. Uh, note, eating out is not what you think it means. It's actually vampire slang for popping off the ribcage and diving in face first until you're either finished or sick. The term has since been sadly culturally appropriated by the living but I can see the head movements are similar. Gross. After that, it was an indistinct blaze of deep purple Sabbath and Zeppelin. I swapped out the evening wear for ripped jeans and a black t-shirt. I even dyed my hair, which was incredibly dangerous because it involved running water. My pride and joy, though, was my ripped denim cape with all my band patches sewn on the outside. It was made specially for me by the lead guitarist of Liverpool heavy metal band Marseille as 189th birthday present, and I wore it everywhere. I encouraged Neil to pursue his artistic talents, and it still makes me smile till my fangs come out when I see him present Art Attack. I tapped out of the scene when Kiss took off, to be honest. You can't gracefully stalk a virginal heiress through the dark streets in platform boots and makeup. You just look stupid. By that time, I was living in a flat share with Mina Harker and a couple of ghouls up in Manchester. And we spent most of the time hunting down yuppies and shagging in their entrails. We were there for the opening night of the Hacienda in 1982. Bernard Manning opened, and the misery and despair his performance elicited from the crowd that night was enough to stain the brickwork with evil. So that it became our hunting grounds till it closed in 97. In fact, I remember telling Norman Cook uh, we were the only people who'd ever seen in there drinking anything else other than water. The Ibiza nights inspired us, and by the summer of 1988, we had a plan. Over the years, we'd all gathered a lot of warehouse properties for rearing human beings like cattle. People always heard the screaming. 
But what we'd realise is that people were fine with being crammed in like battery hens just as long as there's a shitload of MDMA and faithless on the sound system. It was a massive success amongst the vampires of a certain generation. And throughout the 90s, we just kept expanding. We were riding high until the release of the movie Blade in 1998. It was pretty cool at first. I remember someone projected a pirate copy onto the side of the warehouse one night. I just sat there giggling and cheering, popping pills off Edward Cullen whilst Mina pegged him from behind with a stake. But people started wising up, checking the sprinkler system for blood when they came in. And a lot of other vamps tried wearing heavy factor sunscreen to go outside, like Deacon Frost does in the movie. A lot of good mates burst into flames that year. Anyway, I suppose you're wondering why I'm telling you all this. Well, Fatius, me old mucker, I've got myself in a bit of a bind. I suppose it was nostalgia for the second summer of love that got me to organise a 24-hour rave at the crazy house, for old times' sake. I just wanted to see some of the Vamp crew again. We're all really into the John Wick soundtrack. Keanu's got a pretty Vamp-friendly look, hasn't he? The problem is, the new owners would only let us rent the place from 12 till 12, and have got me AMs and me PMs mixed up. How is it 12am when it's night time? It's broad daylight out there. All the food's gone home, and worst of all, they've got rid of the blacked-out window since the rebrand. I'm stuck and a 2x3 cloakroom with 12 other vampires, with the streaks of daylight moving towards us as the sun moves. And my old denim cape has far too many holes in now to adequately shelter me, let alone poor Mina in her boob tube. I'm sobering up, and beginning to realise how utterly foul this place smells in the daytime. I'm not sure how much longer I can last. Please, send a blacked out limo and 12 black golfing umbrellas. We'll tell you everything that we told Anne Rice. Yours faithfully, Stanley von Sorrelhausen. And Rice! She made a bloody mint off those crap films! Astalon! Astalon, quick! We haven't got much time! It was dated 5th of the 3rd, 21. Well, they're dead, aren't they? I mean, they were dead anyway, actually, but they are really dead. Permanently. I don't want to go on about it, lads. There's a lot of money that's caught fire there because it's taken us so long to do this. A lot of money. Um. <sighs> I don't give a fuck. Peter Parker was a put-upon person. He had always been unlucky, ever since a tragic incident in his formative years when his beloved Uncle Ben, heir to the multi-million pound Parker Pen Empire, had left everyone in the family out of his will and gone off with his mistress, sweet Mary Jane. Uncle Ben later died of exhaustion as she was 25 years younger than him. So it's not that Peter Parker. Spider-Man isn't real, but, but this story is, and it is entitled, The Voodoo Village, and it will soon become apparent how it happened. Peter was an IT specialist, a single IT specialist. 
Incidentally, the current plural of IT specialists is a smug of IT specialists. At present, he was specialising the IT of a well-known model railway shop on Smithdown Road, which was still open at the time this story takes place, in the year of our Lord, about twelve years back. The model shop attracted a diverse clientele, from apple-cheeked children running around the displays to retired signalmen who smell of piss, sneaking guiltily out to buy toy trains with their wives' gin money, like career perverts buying specialist pornography. And in between them, troubled teenagers looking to buy gas, glue, or ultramarines. Peter loved working for the company, as no one in charge really knew what he did. Most problems were solved by switching the machines off and on again, but Peter maximised his work hours by installing a Matrix-style screensaver and frantically typing in front of it, until people left him alone to play with his He-Man action figure in peace. And whenever they asked anything of him, he'd snort, roll his eyes condescendingly, and release one of his many standardised responses. I know you. Were you on the cover of Stupid Cunts Weekly? Could you help me, Peter? I'd rather sit on my hands and clap. Sometimes, the desired effect could be achieved by simply holding a hand in the air while staring at the screen and typing furiously with one hand. Which, as an incel IT worker, he was very good at. He knew his colleagues hated him, but they needed him. And the misuse of that power was intoxicating. Today, he had been particularly busy. He had spent six hours calling people cucks on the MCU Facebook page before changing a single HDMI lead at 5pm and thus saving the morning meeting. Then, at 5.15, he put the buffering beach ball video on his screen to run out the clock, and quietly fell asleep with a hand down his sensible chinos, absentmindedly playing with himself to deviant art pictures of Harley Quinn on his phone. Peter hadn't had much sleep lately, which he blamed not on drinking two litres of Pepsi Max and playing hours of fortnight before bed, but on the noisy students next door. Peter called them the Troubles because they were Irish, and had never been punched before. Hours later, Peter awoke at his desk, his hand cold from the pre-cum, oozing from his small, flaccid penis, curled into his palm like a newborn mole rat. As he yawned, stretched and deleted the CCTV footage, he could hear a persistent ringing downstairs in the cubicle farm. Want any of those mouth reavers going to answer the frigging phone? He thought, before checking his watch. It was half after midnight. He must be the only one left in the building. The phone kept ringing. Whoever was on the other end wasn't going to go away and let Peter crack one off in Marie from HR's chair. He sighed and headed downstairs picking up his mug of piping hot orange squash on the way out. The squash never grew cold in the model shop, a curious oddity which may perhaps be connected to some otherworldly supernatural magics beyond human understanding, but this is a red herring. Oh shit, that last, oh, shit, that last bit was notes. I shouldn't have read that out. Can you Yes. Peter made his way through the cubicle farm in search of the persistent ringing. 
picking his nose and wiping it on as many keyboards as he could find along the way, before lifting the offending receiver. You know, we're closed, right? Peter greeted the caller irritably. Not to those belonging to the Order, whispered the voice on the line. There was a rustling sound, as if the caller had used a complicated series of hand gestures to identify themselves over the phone. I just made the sign of the eye, added the voice sheepishly. Uh, yeah, the sign of the eye. Sure, sure. What can I do you for, then? I need a model of my husband, the fourth Earl of Speak, placed by midnight. Is that all right? Peter took down the order number and said farewell to the woman on the phone. What the hell, he thought. Might as well have a proper look at the place, see if there's anything worth stealing. Despite three years at the company, Peter Parker had never been down to the stockroom before. It took him nearly ten minutes of clumping his way down the worn stair carpet before he finally reached the basement. Taking in the room for the first time, he noticed the chipboard walls, the small sink bedecked with wacky mugs, and then the vast gaping maw of an obsidian hell beast, its cruel mouth agape, allowing egress into its unhallowed, unknowable depths. There was also a cardboard sign sellotaped to the carved demon fangs. Stock room. It read. Must be an old build, muttered Peter, taking a sip from his scalding hot mug of orange squash, and stepped through the demon door. The stock room was... odd. The shelves were long and very tall. In fact, it was hard to tell where exactly the shelves ended. They seemed to go on forever, into the swirling clouds above, where the shop floor should have been. The lights were on too. Most stockrooms Peter had been in were lit with cheap fluorescent tubes and not flickering purple fireballs ensconced in snarling demon faces. Also, most stockrooms didn't contain what appeared to be a complete working diorama of the city of Liverpool and surrounding areas. This one did. Otherwise, it would hardly have been worth mentioning. Peter looked closer in fascination. He could see planes, trains and automobiles on DVD, on the desk, next to the fully working city model. Vehicles weaving in and out of the city centre and into the night. He looked closer still and saw that far from the typical empty streets of a model railway, the diorama was populated with hundreds, no, thousands of model figurines, each entirely unique to themselves with the obvious exception of identical twins. They weren't just in the streets. Each building was modelled outside and in, and Peter could see more models sat on sofas, making midnight snacks and fornicating all over the city. He saw his own house, exactly as he'd left it that morning. He inwardly kicked himself for leaving the milk out and his flashlight. Next door, he could see his neighbours, exactly as they always looked, placed exactly as they'd always been, every night, chain-smoking below Peter's window and talking loudly about whatever hole outside of Cork they coincidentally came from. Peter wondered how accurate the diorama truly was. 
and went in search of the model railway shop that he was standing in. And there he was, piping hot squash in hand, staring down from the raised dais onto an even smaller model of Liverpool. And there was someone behind him. Quite fascinating, isn't it? said the figure behind him. Peter yelped in surprise. SHIT! Filling his scalding hot squash all over Melbeck Road in Allerton. That squash is very hot, Peter, the figure remarked as the sizzling noise subsided. That's how I like it, shrugged Peter insolently. Indeed, breathed the figure silkily. All the more reason to be careful. With great power comes great responsibility. I wish people would stop saying that to me, grumbled Peter Parker. It's a very common name. Isn't anyone tired of this Marvel shit yet? I guess I am, said Stanley, who was also there. What the fuck's going on here? Come, Peter, said the figure, who for the sake of time will now reveal is Peter's boss, Alan. I see you have an older number. Help me find it, won't you? Alan slammed down a large, heavy-looking tome onto the lectern in front of them, which, in spite of his outward bravado, made Peter do a little wee in his knickers. Alan took the order from Peter's shaking hand and used his own grey and black-nailed fingers to trace down the lists inscribed in blood on the board. Shelf number two, if you would, please, Peter, Alan intoned. Peter nodded and went to the infinite shelf and grabbed the heavy wooden box in question, proffered to him by a skeletal hand from between the stacks. He handed it to his boss, who removed an exact likeness of the fourth Earl of Speak in miniature and placed it outside a brothel. You'll know which one. Yes, you. Thank you for your help, Peter said Alan, putting an arm around the IT guy's shoulder. But it is late, and you have work in the morning. I hope you won't mind letting yourself out. And do be a pal, and never tell anyone what you saw here tonight. It's only a model, said Peter, in an obscure reference to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yes said Alan, smiling to himself under his sinister hood. It's only a model. Incidentally, Peter, you reek of sperm. I was educated to collegiate, and I know the smell better than most. Please, take more care of your personal hygiene. The next day, Peter Parker was stuck in traffic, just like every day. And just like every day, he wished he had a dinosaur. He could ride through the traffic instead of sitting here in his Austin Allegro. He put on Juice FM to pass the time. And what he heard was at once both disturbing and arousing, like Tom Waits covering Atomic Kitten. The tide is high, but I'm holding on. According to the news, the fourth Earl of Speak had been caught in a penetrative position with a portion of prostitutes, and a family from Melbeck Road in Allerton were being treated in the Royal for third-degree orange squash burns. It could be coincidence, but if there were any other rational explanation for a sudden, unconcentrated hot squash rain, then Peter was hard-pressed to think of one. It seemed what happened in the diorama happened 
in real life. That lunchtime, Peter went to Daphne's Cheesecake Factory and bought everyone in the office a fudge ring, blaming a cancer scare on his uncharacteristic generosity. Once he was certain his colleagues were suitably distracted, he headed back down to the diorama, determined to use its power for the greater good. And by greater, he of course meant his own. Acting quickly, Peter raised the roof off of the old power bank on Castle Street, and using a pair of off-brand tweezers, prized the tiny stacks of money from the vault and into his own box room. Next, he loaded his noisy neighbor's back garden with farm animals, flipping over their car as well while he was there. Finally, he opened the stock tome and scanned the order numbers, found what he was looking for, and headed towards the infinite shelves to take the profit package. He opened the lid. It was exactly what he had been looking for. Welcome to Jurassic Park, breathed Peter Parker, taking a tiny buckaroo saddle from his pocket. When Peter returned home that evening, he found that the police had his neighbours handcuffed over the upside-down bonnet of their car, in what was later revealed to be a charge of cattle rustling. Oh, how Peter laughed. He laughed and he laughed as he reached for his keys and ignored the police and locals staring at him. Or perhaps they were staring at the dinosaur that he'd rode in on. <coughs> Still chuckling at the misfortune he'd placed his neighbours in, Peter headed up to his box room and leapt into the haphazard pile of fivers and tenors that he'd placed there, before stuffing them into his washing machine to launder them. A few weeks later, Peter Parker was roused from slumber in his super king-sized racing car bed by the sound of the doorbell echoing through his palatial Southport estate. He rose, donned his Hugh Hefner robes and gleefully ran down the spiral staircase to the door. The Amazon delivery man's nose wrinkled at the sight and smell of the mercifully closed dressing gown as he handed Peter his packages. Peter grunted his best attempt at thanks and daubed his name in smegma on the dotted line. He headed towards the groove he dug into his Corinthian leather sofa, pausing only to turn his 292-inch television to Babe Station for background noise as he tore open the cardboard packages. Thirteen boxes of Harley Quinn Funko Pops. Limited edition, naturally. Call me Mr. J. He breathed heavily in triumph at the bobble-headed figurines. The Amazon delivery man grimaced and closed the door on himself. That night, Peter headed back to the diorama with a sack of Funko Pops, sex toys and lubricant in tow. Never in his wildest dreams did he think that he would be mere hours away from the greatest act of lovemaking in human history. A menage a baker's dozen with the sexiest woman ever committed to 2D animation, Jessica Rabbit be damned. But he wouldn't be working alone. Peter grinned to himself as he looked down at the plastic wingman in his hand. Oh, He-Man, it's going to be a beautiful evening, he said to the fixed plastic smile of the Prince of Eternia. 
I'm afraid that's quite out of the question, came the booming dread voice of Alan. Peter turned to see his hooded boss behind him, backed by a similarly robed cabal of cultists, barring the exits with crossbows and halberds in hand. Oh, Peter, we had such high hopes for you, and the Dark Lord knows we are in need of a good techie to take the satanic sect paperless. But I am sure that you can see that riding an Apatosaurus around Wavertree with a harem of bobbleheads is somewhat incompatible with the subtle actions of a thousand-year creed diverting the destiny of mankind. Peter Parker panicked. Uh, what, what are you going to do with me? Well, at first we were simply going to kill you for your transgressions. But after talking to your fellow staff and peers, it has been decided that whatever happens is going to be much, much slower. You are not a well-liked man, Peter. Alan clicked his fingers, and two cultists began to ascend the raised dais towards their quarry. Peter's eyes darted back and forth desperately for a means of escape. Whether he was looking at the room around him, or the very same room on the diorama, he was still surrounded. He ducked the jab of a halberd and swung his sack of sex toys and fungal pops in a wild arc of self-preservation. The sack caught on the spear tip, tearing and sending the contents of the bag across the diorama. Suddenly, a red and black lycra-clad woman with a three-foot-wide head materialized into existence. Colliding with the cultists on the dais, sending the three tumbling down into a mass of crushed bones and disproportionate body parts. Fucking Lord! Screamed Harley Quinn, her brief life tainted with the knowledge that her body would never be strong enough to lift her head off the ground. Soon, the evil was raining lopsided women, their hefty heads plowing through the cultists, lucky enough to die, crushing those who Alan lifted his ornamental halberd and scanned the room, grinning devilishly as he spied Peter, soaked in piss and crawling away in fear under the diorama. You're a sick bastard, Peter Parker! And that's coming from someone who's part of a death cult! He shouted over the agony of the alarmingly asymmetrical anti-heroines. Killing you will be my first decent act in years! Oh, I hope this works, breathed Peter as his fingers closed around the worn leather of a familiar handle. Alan raised the ornamental halberd and brought it whistling down through the diorama towards Peter's neck. But just before the steel bit flesh, Peter raised the sword and parried the demon blade. Alan fell back as Peter stood and lifted He-Man's sword of power above him, yelling triumphantly, by the power of Grayskull! Mystical lightning struck the blade, and the ill-mannered computer programmer was instantly transformed into a bowl-headed demigod through the power of pop culture. All I wanted to do was sell train sets to kids, muttered Alan, before he was instantly bisected from the head down. Hours later, Peter Parker, who would return to his old flabby self, sat on the bulbous head of Birds of Prey Harley, staring out at the remains 
of the magical diorama. He had tried fixing it with Gorilla Glue, but all he managed to achieve was sealing his fingers together. Whatever sorceries the diorama had once held had dissipated, leaving Peter bereft, with nothing but millions of pounds, a mansion, and a magic sword. I think you'll find that's mine, said a familiar voice. Peter Parker looked up, all cynicism vanishing from the computer programmer's eyes. Adam? Adam, Prince of Eternia? It was he. He man, that is. He must have fallen on a diorama with the Quins. What happened here? He man asked, taking the sword of power from the techie's outstretched hands. Uh, cultists? Peter shrugged. And the women? Uh, I had to nurse killed them, I'm afraid. Really? I am sorry. Uh, it's okay. The screens would have put me off my stroke anyway. Uh, fancy becoming best mates, said Peter Parker, his eyes beaming. He man looked down at him suddenly. Listen, I fight evil for a living, and, and you are by far the worst person I have ever met. And that includes a genocidal maniac with a skull for a face. Peter's smile faded as his childhood hero hefted his blade above his head and transformed almost everything about him except for his disdain. Please, Adam, could, could you make it a clean death? No, I don't think so, said He-Man, putting down his sharpened sword of power and lifting a blunt paving slab. A good five minutes later, He-Man exited the model railway shop on Smithdown Road and used the morning echo to wipe the blood from his power sword. He stared out across the strange world he found himself in, particularly at the garage on the other side of the road, flattened by a three-story jar of lube. Suddenly, a terrified tabby cat bounded from the wreckage and into his outstretched arms. He-Man tipped its chin and listened to it purr. He liked cats. All right, He-Man, said a man on the street. All right, replied He-Man, and he wondered how he would live. Mm-hmm. Uh -huh.